0: Hey, good morning. Listen, uh, we're just a week out from Christmas, and normally I uh, use this time to to teach on something that is associated with the season, with Christmas, thematically. Um, but since we're doing our Christmas Eve service next Sunday, uh, and, and remember, it's Sunday morning. Christmas Eve is going to be Sunday morning next week. Uh, I just thought I'd continue in our study in the Gospel of John this morning. Um, I mean I hope that's cool. Uh I mean if it's not cool we're in trouble because I don't have anything else prepared. Uh but 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 we're right in the middle of this this account of the trial of Jesus and I sort of hate to break it up. It's cuz because really this is what we're going to be talking about today is part 2 from last week. Uh but uh merry christmas if that helps. Uh the, the Anyway, we need to jump into our text here this morning, uh, and if you've got a Bible with you uh, or a Bible app, if you'd like to go to John chapter 19, please. Last week, we finished up chapter 18. We read about Jesus' uh, first in- interrogation by Pilate, who was the Roman governor overseeing Judea for the Roman Empire. Uh, we considered uh, in that in that interchange between these two, we considered what kind of a king Jesus is, what kind of a kingdom it is that he's bringing into this world, that's advancing through this world, and we we realize that it is uh, very distinct from the kingdoms of this world and how it operates and, and what its goals are. And today that interrogation with Pilate continues and concludes, and it reveals some things that I consider to be really encouraging truths uh, for us about God's purposes at work in this world Regardless of what we see uh, going on around us, because uh, sometimes, you know, we know this, things go terribly badly in, in life. And, and and much like in the text that we're going to read today, it seems dark and, and and it feels discouraging, feels like all hope is lost. But there's a deeper truth that we as followers of Jesus need to hold on to in troubling times when things are not going the way we had hoped that they would go. And that's what we're going to be considering uh, somewhat today. That'll be the larger theme of of this text. Uh, so if you found your way to John chapter 19, we're going to begin uh, reading with verse 1. Pilate, remember, he's interviewed Jesus. He's gone before the, the religious leaders at that time, offered to trade out one of the prisoners, you know, release somebody on a, a holiday uh, prison release and... Uh, he offered them either Barabbas or Jesus, and the religious leaders uh, chose um, Barabbas. And so from there, we're starting in verse 1, from there it says, uh, Then Pilate had Jesus flogged with a lead-tipped whip. Soldiers wove a crown of thorns and put it on his head, and they put a robe on him. Hail, king of the Jews, they mocked, and they slapped him across the face. Pilate went outside again and said to the people, I'm going to bring him out to you now, but understand clearly that I find him not guilty. Then Jesus came out wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe. And Pilate said, look, here's the man. All right, so the drama begins uh, with with Pilate having Jesus flogged. and, uh, you know, there's a lot of speculation about that as to which this would be. The Romans had a penchant for punishing people, so there were various degrees of, of that sort of punishment, each of them success, uh, successively brutal. No matter which one it was, and I don't like to necessarily go into all the details of that, we know this was brutal for Jesus. Uh, with the addition you know, the, uh, of the soldiers... Mocking him and beating him and putting, you know, weaving a crown together with thorns on it, that they put on his head. This was Pilate's attempt at getting Jesus released. You know, he finds him not guilty. He wants to 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 drive home the point. He's hoping to drive home that this guy is beaten. There's nothing to this guy anymore. He's humiliated. He's brutalized. He's not a threat. And he emphasizes it by saying these the words, "Behold the man." In other words, look at him. He's just a beaten man. There's no threat in this guy of him becoming a king or disrupting things. That's what Pilate had in mind. But John, again, is driving home a thematic truth that sits just under the surface of these events. We've said before that that John isn't trying to provide for us a straightforward history in his gospel. He changes the chronological order at times in order to drive home different concepts or points his account of jesus's arrest and interrogation it's distinct from the other gospels and it's not that he made stuff up it's just that he'll rearrange things and add in details that the others didn't because he's trying to help us get to the meaning of these events and that's far more important than just knowing what happened knowing why or what's going on here what it was that god was up to that's john's point in this So his account of the soldiers and Jesus and Pilate's presentation may differ a little from the synoptics, but this is an example of him trying to show us something, trying to reveal something. And you know, I think about this, in every gospel account we do have the soldiers uh, heaping this abuse on Jesus, and and I've wondered about that a lot. Like, why, why did they go to such an extreme here, like of staging a parody of Jesus being a king. I mean, why were they so passionate about this all of a sudden? Because this, uh, the, the Roman army was a, an army for hire. You got enough money, you, can, you too can have an army. I mean, that's just the way that worked in that world. And so it wasn't like they were driven by the noble desire to, to protect and defend the, the values of the empire. It wasn't that at all. As a matter of fact, we know historically, They had no great love for Caesar, for Tiberius. There was a military revolt in that region not long after these events, uh, or actually before these events, because they hadn't been paid what they had been promised to be paid. So I just, you know, I don't think they made this crown of thorns and dished out this uh, abuse because they were offended by somebody claiming rivalry to Caesar. But if we think about their situation. And think about these guys in this in this in this place. You know, they're, they're they're deployed in a place that's far from home, and and it's an uncomfortable place. It's a desert climate with people whose traditions are so foreign and difficult to understand, and they're dealing with zealots who would stab them unprovoked, uh, attack them uh, out of the blue w- without any given notice, always keeping these soldiers on edge because of that. And I think of all the pent-up frustration and fear and anger at being away from home under this never-ending threat, and I just think that it came pouring out as hatred and racial bigotry and wrath on this one lone prisoner, Jesus. And so they beat him and spit on him and put a royal-looking robe on him, and they wove a crown together of thorns, thorn bushes, and they put that on his head, which was supposed to be a parody of the wreath crown that Caesar would wear. And it's like a hornet's nest got kicked here. And all the worst of religion and politics and human anger were swirling together in this perfect storm. And all the stuff that represents what's wrong in this broken world gets unleashed on Jesus in this moment, concluding with this crown of thorns. You know, the soldiers, they saw it as one thing ironic mockery from their side. But John is putting this story together. It's placing it here for us to see something more. There's something more going on in this. And when we see it, it it takes our breath away. Because this little section here is actually a hyperlink. It's, it's, It's something meant to take us to another part of the biblical narrative. This is one that takes us all the way back to the beginning of this whole story in the Garden of Eden when God described the consequences of humanity's uh, uh, trying to become our own God, of determining good and evil on our, on our own terms. And God said to Adam in Genesis chapter 3, The ground is cursed because of you. All your life you'll struggle to scratch a living from it. It will grow thorns and thistles for you. By the sweat of your brow, you'll have food to eat until you return to the ground from which you were made. The thistles and the thorns, they're emblematic of creation's fall. It gets woven together and placed on Jesus's brow, crowning him with all that we had done. And it culminates with Pilate's words, behold the man. And again, back in Genesis chapter 2, God created humanity, you know, meaning He created man, humanity, in His own image. The image of God, it says He created them. This was our vocation. The, to be image bearers of God in creation. Something that obviously we tried to usurp and we messed it up and we continue to fail and mess this up over and over throughout the history of the world. It continues to keep falling apart. And John, through his gospel, is grabbing us by the shoulders and saying, look what God has done. And we see Jesus, the new image bearer of God, crowned with the consequence of our rebellion against our Creator. It's savage and it's brutal and yet it's almost too wonderful to believe. As N.T. Wright says, it's a picture of our living, loving, wounded, and bleeding God. And it's revealing to us that Jesus bore the consequence of our sins in order to reverse them. You know, if you remember last week, the section ended with, with Jesus Taking Barabbas' place on death row. And we talked about how the kingdom of God advances in this world through this same kind of self-sacrificial love. This determination to love in such a way that, that you would take this to yourself. This is the way, this is the power that's revealed in God's kingdom. And this is a continuation of that theme, but John arranges the events so that it unlocks an even deeper idea here. Because when humanity fell and we were exiled from the Garden of Eden, things fell into disorder and to chaos. A sort of an anti-creation took place in that moment. And instead of the multiplying of life as God had commanded for it to flourish, we found the first murder. And instead of the land being fruitful, there's scarcity and there's this fight to keep what's mine and this plot to take what's yours and all of it meshes together and becomes the very world we live in with all of its pain, with all of its trouble, with all of (laughs) its pressing need. And God's solution isn't to wipe us all out or to show up like a superhero and blast the evildoer. No, God shows up in human form, the new image bearer, behold the man, and he takes it all onto himself to carry it away. The greatest consequence of the fall of humanity was our separation from God and our exile from his realm of life. That was the whole idea there. Remember, Adam and Eve had to leave the garden, return back to the place of chaos and death and there was an angel even guarding that entrance so they couldn't get to the tree of life, exiled from that life. But through Jesus, that's all reversed. We are reconciled with God and we're given reentry into God's realm and promised eternal life. And this takes place first in our hearts because we could look at it and say, well, you say it's a reversal, Rob, but you know, I look around and things are still pretty rough. I don't know. But look at how this happened in the beginning. It, it's a reversal of it because when it happened, when the fall took place, it, it happened first in the heart. God said to the human, human race, If the day that you eat this fruit, you will surely die. But they ate the fruit and they didn't die, but something happened in their hearts. They were positioned differently, inwardly. So when the reversal comes, it's the same thing. Something happens in the heart. Positionally, we're changed. And we saw what happened in the fall. Well, that's something that changed in the heart then became evident in the life that was lived that brought more chaos and disorder. And now, when that reversal takes place in our lives, then we begin to reveal what it's like to live on earth as it is in heaven. And one day, it will culminate when the king does return and he sets all things right. Again, all of this that's gone so wrong. I, you know... You've heard me say before, I have no idea what that's going to look like. Uh, It's very difficult for me to imagine, and I don't usually spend a lot of time trying to imagine it because then my intellect comes in and tries to try to make a big deal about the whole thing, and I'd have to watch out about that. But, But because of what's happened in my heart, because something profoundly changed there, then I believe. I believe in all the other promises of what he's going to do and how he's going to do it, and I'll leave it in his hands as to what it looks like. But Jesus took the consequence of sin on himself, and through that, he set us free. The greatest gift that we could have. Okay, the story continues, verse 6. When they saw him, the leading priests and temple guards began shouting, him, Crucify him! Crucify take him! Take him yourselves and crucify him, Pilate said. I find him not guilty. The Jewish leaders replied, By our law he ought to die because he called himself the Son of God. When Pilate heard this, he was more frightened than ever. He took Jesus back into the headquarters again and asked him, Where are you from? But Jesus gave no answer. Why don't you talk to me, Pilate demanded. Don't you realize I have the power to release you or crucify you? Then Jesus said, You'd have no power over me at all unless it were given to you from above. So the one who handed me over to you has the greater sin. And Pilate tried to release him. In the Greek, it's an ongoing activity. He's doing this over and over. But the Jewish leaders shouted, If you release this man, you are no friend of Caesar. Anyone who declares himself a king is a rebel against Caesar. When they said this. Pilate brought Jesus out to them again. And Pilate sat down on the judgment seat of the platform that is called the stone pavement in Hebrew, Gabbatha. It was now about noon on the day of preparation for the Passover. Pilate said to the people, Look, here is your king. Away with him, they yelled. Away with him, crucify him. What? Crucify your king? Pilate asked. We have no king but Caesar, the leading priest shouted back. (sighs) And Pilate turned Jesus over to them to be crucified. Okay, so the back and forth continues in this. And when the religious leaders see Jesus beaten and bleeding, it doesn't stir pity in them or empathy at all. They begin shouting the unthinkable. They're calling for one of their own people to be crucified. And this is unheard of. It's actually a detail in the Gospels. It's in, I think, pretty much every Gospel account. It's one that prompts biblical critics to to deny the, the, the authenticity of this account because they say nobody would have called for the crucifixion of their own countrymen. But I just think that's naive optimism about human nature. Uh, It fits with the whole reading of this section, and it's so disturbing. This part of the gospel story is such a tragedy. Not a tragedy for Jesus, and we'll get to that. But it is a human tragedy. As we bear witness to the futile and painful efforts of humanity trying to work out good and evil on their own terms, based on their own understanding of things. Because this isn't a story about the forces of religion and government working together for the common good. No, this is about collusion and abuse of position and the betrayal of spiritual leadership. John lays out this stunning picture of an ever-worsening apostasy by the religious leaders here. They abandon all pretense of devotion to God's purposes, and they embrace the military engine of Rome calling for crucifixion. And then they raise the Roman standard higher than the temple by declaring that they have no other king but Caesar. They traded Barabbas for Jesus, taking a terrorist over a savior. And here in this account, they trade a statue of Tiberius for the God of Abraham. Caiaphas and the religious leaders are as much a parable for us as they are historic figures. They present a cautionary tale to God's people at any time in any place. They employed the world's power and methodology to ensure they maintained their religious status quo. And in the process, they sacrificed their own souls. And these are warnings for us to meditate on. These stories are here for a reason. But backing up, they demand that Jesus be crucified. And Pilate pushes back saying, you know, you want him crucified, you do it. And they push back, saying, trying to explain the terrible crimes that Jesus has committed, calling himself the Son of God. Remember back in chapter 10, it's something that they picked up stones to stone him with. He was saying, what good that I have done? Are you doing this? It's not because of the good you've done. It's because you call yourself the Son of God. You're making yourself equal with God. And it's an interesting detail here that it says that Pilate became more frightened than ever because I didn't realize he was frightened before that moment. But as I think about it, I mean, this would have been a, you know, a very worrisome situation. There was a real threat that this scene could blow up into a riot and be reported back to Tiberius, or the Jewish leaders could end up going back to, the, to Rome and carrying a complaint, which had been known to be done before, a complaint against Pilate. So the stakes were increasing all the more, especially on a political level here. But for Pilate, the religious leaders have introduced a whole new scope to this trial. Jesus claims to be the Son of God. And Son of God, that was a familiar term to anybody in the Roman Empire. I mean, the, the former Emperor Augustus called himself the Son of God, the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords. You, you thought the church came up with that, but we didn't. We took it and applied it to who we believe it really would be applied to. But in the ancient Roman world, there were always tales of the gods disguising themselves as humans and walking among them to, to test humans, especially important ones like provincial governors such as Pilate or whatever. In Acts chapter 14, the crowds at Lyconia think that Paul and Barnabas are the gods walking among them because a the guy got healed and, and they're ready to sacrifice bulls and do all this kind of stuff because they assume. So we know that, that this w- was a thought that was present on the cultural landscape. People would think like this. So Jesus has suddenly registered on Pilate's religious radar, and it disturbs him. So he goes back in asking a question on that level. Where are you from? And earlier, Jesus had made it clear that his kingdom is not from this world. It operates differently. And also, Pilate must want a clearer answer in this. Where are you from in this? Are you, in other words, are you from heaven? Are you a God working among us? And Jesus' silence is profound. Because, I mean, honestly, from a theologian, the theological standpoint, we would say, this is your chance, Jesus. Let's get this taken care of. We can get this settled. Don't even have to debate it ever again. But Jesus is silent because Jesus, remember, Jesus wouldn't accept Pilate's use of the word king when he applied it to him earlier. And here he won't accommodate Pilate's superstitious notions of deity either. This is on a different level. And this pushes Pilate to flex, saying, in essence, you know, you can't afford to give me the silent treatment. I control this situation here. I can either set you free or I can have you crucified. And I imagine Pilate, you know, stands up a little taller at this moment, trying to emphasize the point, making this declaration, in other words, that the empire stands behind him. I mean, for all appearances, Pilate is the most powerful man on this stage. The Roman war machine of legionnaires is behind him. And behind them, the most powerful single person in that part of the world, Tiberius Caesar, uh, is his boss. You know, at the beginning of Luke's gospel, at the start of the Christmas story there, Tiberius calls for a census, and most of the world goes into motion because of the command of one man that's power unlike anything that we've seen, not just in our history, but since that time period. Tiberius and the subsequent Roman emperors held unthinkable power and dominion over large parts of the world. And Pilate, Pilate his ambassador, is right there, the, the leading edge of his sword. But Jesus quietly pulls back the curtain to reveal that Pilate... And the legions, even Rome itself, were without any agency except for what heaven afforded them, for what God was going to allow. Even Tiberius, ordering that census, was prompted by a greater hand, seeing to it that the one was born in Bethlehem like he had to be. Jesus looks at this representative of the most powerful empire earth has ever known and says, you have no power except for what's allowed by God. And this is not, you know, people have come up with all kinds of interpretations on that. This is not saying that God approves of what Rome or any human governments do necessarily. He's not putting a stamp of approval on that. He's putting the representatives of the state on notice. There is a far greater power at work than you and your machinations, is what he's saying. And a truth then gets revealed in this, in this exchange between the two of them. There's a truth here. There is no power greater than God's. So let that soak in. Realize there is nothing that is going to stop Jesus from accomplishing God's plans and purposes. Don orchestrates this entire scene to bring us here to this moment, to this declaration And the irony of this is thick, because the one who should be the most powerful person in this drama, regardless of what he says, is completely powerless. He's been trying to release Jesus. (laughs) He says, "I have the power to let you go. He's been trying to do that. He can't do it. And Jesus makes it clear that he also doesn't have the power to take Jesus' life. Jesus is laying his life down, and that is a huge difference. You know, in Matthew's gospel, when Peter drew a sword, he was going to protect Jesus from the people coming into the garden. I'm going to fight for you, Jesus. He's lopping off ears and all. And Jesus tells him to stop it. And he said, don't you realize I could ask my father for thousands of angels to protect us? And he would send them instantly. But if I did, how would the scriptures be fulfilled that describe what must happen now? There's a far greater power at work than what we see going on here in the surface. The message, there's there's a message in this for us. Despite the darkness of the hour, it is in reality the hour of glory for Jesus in this scene we're reading about. He's not so much crucified as he is lifted up like he said he would be back in John chapter 3. And from that vantage point, draw all humanity to himself. Jesus is not a victim when we read this account. He is a king ascending his throne, taking on our greatest enemy, death, and transforming that into an entry to life. The gospel is telling us God will accomplish his purposes. He will restore and redeem and reveal his glory despite what's going on in this world. In fact, God has the power to work through the mess of this world as we're seeing in this account here in order to advance what his purposes are and what it is that he's planning on doing. And we know what he's planning on doing is redeeming and restoring. And there is nothing that is going to stop that. There is nothing that is going to stop God from doing what he set out to do so long ago. Dark and terrible things have happened and do happen on this earth, but they are not capable of stopping God's intended glory from being revealed. The darkness cannot extinguish the light. It is always the reverse of that. It is light that puts the darkness away. God is in control. He's in control throughout history. And if He was sovereign during that hour in Jerusalem when everything seemed lost and hopeless and swallowed up in hatred and ignorance, if He can bring about a glorious redemption, when by all accounts it seemed like a total disaster and defeat, we can trust Him with our world and our hour right now. If God could transform that moment and bring about His glory, He can transform any hour, and we don't have to worry. So like Christians... Why would we rage? (laughs) Why would we be frightened and despair? Why would we buy into things like this is the end of the church or Christianity or this is the end of whatever it is? Why would we listen to that? Why would we raise our fists in anger in our times of darkness when we have this Jesus leading us through? What sort of darkness is going to overwhelm God? turmoil of our society and our government? Do you think God's bringing His hands? The various troubles or crises that we face in our own lives, and we face them. I know we do. This world has a penchant for being able to dish out trouble and pain and sorrow to us. It's, it's like a non-stop faucet flowing into us. All those various ways in which the, the world can throw trouble at us, is that going to ruin God's plan to redeem? Paul told us in Romans 8, all these various things going on. and He's determined. He said nothing is going to separate us from the love of God, which is revealed in Christ Jesus. He says not stuff going on today, not stuff going on tomorrow, not stuff in the heavenly realm, not stuff on the earthly realm not life or death, none of it. He says, no, despite all of these things, overwhelming victory is ours through Christ who loved us. Read Romans 8, Christians. Read Romans 8. We can trust Him. It's our calling to trust Him and to believe. When the world seems to spin out of control, when our lives feel pressed and overwhelmed, like during a holiday, like Christmas, when we may feel Disillusioned, or despairing, or lonely. Let's remember, God will redeem this hour, too. So, as we read last week, it's for this reason Jesus came into the world to bear witness to the truth, and this is the truth that God loves us. That, that God one day will turn the groaning of creation into an everlasting song of praise. There is no darkness that can quench the light. So let's live in that light. Let's live from that place of hope and confidence. Let's be agents of his redemptive good in this world. Let's embody the peace on earth and goodwill towards humanity that this season represents. Because that is the hope that Jesus brings into this world. Right on? All right, very cool. If you are able and willing, will you stand with me, please? Father, we're so grateful to you for the promise that we have. And Lord, we stand amazed at the story of the gospel, at the way in which you move and operate and work when all hope seemed gone, you, by your Spirit, are there to remind us through the conversations and the words that we read about. Hope isn't gone. Hope is just emerging. So, Father, man, work that into our, into our hearts, into our minds. Father, help us be shaped by this truth. Help us be agents of your light in this world. Help us represent your unfailing love and your everlasting grace. Lord, as we receive it, help us express it. Let this Christmas season be a time when we take every opportunity we can to reveal your good and gracious heart to the world around us. We pray this, Father, in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.
1: In iron fists, rain like fire on politics. But without a sword, no armor guard, a common boy in mother's arms. A gun. Now rests upon the shoulders of the space. Have you known inside your heart? is full the out it is dark upon profane shine sacred sun not ashamed to be one of us without his soul
0: Father, we thank you that this is the hope that we have. Not in in our ability to mount up our own power, but in your beautiful, humble power that is all powerful. Help us live from that confidence, Father. I pray that for each of us as we enter this Christmas season. Let your grace be upon us, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Let's uh, speak this blessing. Leave here today. Remember that next Sunday morning... What's happening next Sunday morning? Did, I, did somebody say, I don't know? <laughs> oh, snow. There is, yes, it is forecast. So, All right, well, let's speak this together. May Christ be a light to illumine and guide you. Christ be a shield to overshadow you. Christ be under you. Christ be over you. Christ beside you, on your left and on your right, both in this world and the one to come. Go in peace, you children of God. Merry Christmas.